Amen, right? Amen. He is our living hope. Every day, every minute, we stand on Christ. We stand on Christ. And it's such a joy to be able to dwell in that every single day, every single minute. And we've been talking about the benefits of doing that, right? All weekend of dwelling in the Father's house. And this morning, God's going to continue that conversation with us as we talk about that rock and being lifted up on the rock. Have you ever, um, you know, noticed that in really, really nice houses, there are features that just really stand out, that make that house unique and, you know, special? You might have noticed some things like that as you walked into this house. I I remember uh, years ago, I was doing some kind of little open house tour for some builder or something, I don't know. And uh, I walked into this house and we went into the master bathroom and I was just like, like I was mesmerized by this bathtub. It was built out of rocks and there was like, instead of a faucet, there was like a waterfall that came down into it. And I just stood there and stared at it. I just couldn't believe that somebody could really have a house that had a bathtub like that. You know, this was years before HGTV and, you know, fancy bathrooms that we see now all the time. And so this feature just like stood out to me because I love creativity. I love waterfalls. That's like, I mean, I'm just so drawn to waterfalls anyway. And I just thought to every day be able to, you know, take a bath in here. It was just so cool. And I know you've probably seen some features like that in houses too that just really catch your eye and probably, you know, because times have changed and and there's a lot of very unique house design these days and so you might even have some really special features in your own house that that you really love out, but this, that you really love. But this morning, God is going to speak to us about a very, very special feature in his house. And it's going to really stand out to us. We find this feature at the end of verse 5, and you just copied it, and we just said it together, and it's a rock. Okay, it's a rock. Now, at face value, you might just think, okay, it's a rock, right? It might not seem like it really is very special, but it is beyond special. I think it's one of a kind, I know it's one of a kind of special. And when we dwell in the house of the Lord, that's where we live, we're going to find that this benefit is life-changing. This rock is life-changing each and every day of our lives. So first of all, let's look at the rock and think, what makes this rock so, so special? Well, to answer that, you know, we remember that David wrote about this rock here. So I want us to dig back a little bit into David and get some clarity about David's relationship with the Lord. Most of us are probably aware that David had a special anointing on his life when he was just a young person. You know, the Lord picked him and anointed him. But we also find out that he was very special to the Lord because the Bible describes David as a man of having a heart like God's heart, right? He had a heart after God's own heart. Now, he was far from perfect. We read stories about him. We're like, whoa, David, right? You know, but he loved God and he loved the word of God. He loved the ways of God. And here's the thing about David. David loved the presence of God. That's why he writes what, you know, um, what he wrote here that we've been memorizing. One thing I've asked from the Lord, that I shall seek. That, That came from David's heart. He wanted to be in the presence of God. Now, as I've studied the Bible over the years, in the Old Testament especially, and I see God's heart as he relates with people, this is what I have personally come to believe. That although God, yes, had a perfect timing for Jesus to be born on the earth. I mean, we know, we read in Galatians that it says, you know, at just the right time, God sent forth his son Jesus to be born on the earth. Yet, I find as I read through so many of these accounts in the Old Testament, that God was so desirous to bring forth the benefits of being in Christ to his children, that there were times he revealed some of those benefits to kids of his, right, that were kind of like his favorites. And we all like to think God doesn't play favorites, but the reality is many times he does. And he picks his favorites by the people who are choosing him, right? Which is, you know, when one of your kids loves on you extra special, you're like, oh, I really love you today, right? 
And have you ever maybe bought something for your child for their birthday, you bought it for Christmas, and you just can't wait to give it to them, and you give it to them early, right? That, if you can think of that kind of dynamic here. It's like God knew what was coming for us in Christ, and he sees some of these people like Abraham or, or Moses or Joseph, David, who are so seeking after him, him in the Old Testament long before Christ arrived on the earth. But we all know Christ is eternal, right? He was there before the foundation of the world. He's the one that created the world. And so it wasn't that Christ was born like first time when he, um, you know, was born here on the earth. Christ has always been. And God knew the benefits that were coming in Christ. They just hadn't been revealed on the earth yet. But what we find as we look at scripture, that there are people in the Old Testament, David being one of them, who seem to really already be aware of some things. And we find that in the things that they write. In fact, Many times it's prophecy, and God was just speaking, and they didn't even probably know what they were talking about, right? But you also find, for many of them, it's also experiential. And I find this with David. David writes lots of things in the Psalms that are prophecies of Christ, but he's writing about them as if he's experienced them himself, which is the case in this passage that we're looking at. Now, we don't have time to get into that whole dynamic this morning. You might disagree with me on that. That's where I stand on that after a lot of study and just seeing, well, how did they know that? How did, how did they already realize that? But I, I believe that David, no doubt, experienced some of the glories of Jesus way before Jesus set his physical, you know, in the flesh body on the earth. And see, I am, in light of that, I'm convinced that when David writes and now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me because he was talking about the rock that his feet had been put on. That rock is not just any old rock. That rock is Jesus Christ, the eternal rock. You know, Isaiah was another one. He prophesied of the Messiah being a rock long before he came. He said this, he said, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in this stone will not be disturbed. So when David writes about this benefit that we have of having our feet lifted up on the rock, I believe he's talking about Christ. Now, you might think, but I thought Christ was the house. How is he also the rock? Well, you know what? He also calls himself the door. And he also, I mean, he's all of it, right? And that's another mystery of Christ that we just have to ask God to reveal to us and to understand and to realize that some of God's thoughts are so much higher than our thoughts, we're not going to be able to get it all. But he is all in all. In fact, we're told in the New Testament, he is everything and he fills everything, right? So we may not be able to completely wrap our heads around how he is the house, but he's also the rock. He's the cornerstone. In fact, Jesus said of himself in Matthew 21, he said, he asked his followers, he said, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected? became the cornerstone he was speaking about himself think about a cornerstone what is a cornerstone it's usually the first stone that's laid when they're building right Jesus is the first it's the foundation stone of the house Jesus is the foundation he's the rock which holds the house together that's what a cornerstone does Many times on a cornerstone, there's an inscription written on that cornerstone that identifes when the house was built, who the house, or what the house is. Christ, you know, the cornerstone, we find the identity of the house in him. And that cornerstone is the rock that gives stability to the house and those who live there. Jesus is all of this and more. And so he is this rock. When David says he will lift me up on a rock, he is that rock. And you're not going to find that feature anywhere else that you ever go. You're not going to find it. Only Christ. And it's one of the many benefits that we get of living in the Father's house. Now, there are a lot of benefits to being uh, lifted up on the rock of Christ. A whole lot of them. David only writes about one of them. And that's the one we're going to focus on this morning. See, what does he say in Psalm 27? It says, he will lift me up on a rock. And now, what happens? My head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. Say that with me. 
And now my head will be lifted up above my enemies around me. So we're going to talk about that benefit, that benefit this morning. So first of all, let's think about this. It's him that lifts us up on the rock. He, he lifts us up on the rock. And again, that might seem like a little detail, but it's anything but little. It's very important to get this point. Verse five says, he will lift me up on a rock. It doesn't say, now I'm going to climb up on the rock of Jesus. Okay, I'm going to hoist my leg up there and do my best to get up on the rock. That's not what it says. It says, he will lift me up on a rock. Meaning we don't have to climb up there, ladies. Our father, we're in the father's house and he lifts us up on the rock and he plants our feet on Jesus. I don't know if you've ever tried to climb up on anything and you just don't have the physical strength to get up there, okay? Um, I can remember as a kid, we used to go to Lake Gaston a lot and there was this floating raft and it was, you know, it was wood, made out of wood, but it was on these barrels. And it, so it sat up really high out of the water. And I was always so frustrated because my brother could always climb up on top. My sister could always climb up on top, but I would be down there just struggling and I didn't have the upper body strength to push myself up to get up on that raft. Having our feet lifted up on Christ is not something anybody can do on their own. Nobody can do that. We don't have what it takes. But out of our Father's goodness, when we use our key, our key, right, to open the door and come into his house by grace, through faith, not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. Verse 5 tells us he's the one that picks us up and puts us there. And there's so much peace in knowing that, that he does it for us. And here's why. Because it's easy to look around us and say, well, she's such a strong Christian. Like, I would be like that too if I had grown up in a Christian home. Or if I knew as much about the Bible as they do, or, you know, if I hadn't made all these mistakes, or if I hadn't gone through this trial in my life, and on and on we could go with all of the reasons why we can't seem to have a secure and stable life in Christ, or why other people are able to do it better. But that's looking at ourselves. That's looking at our strength, our situation, our ability. And that's not what this says. It says, he lifts us up on Christ. So there's no looking around and comparing yourself and justifying ourselves to think why we can't live strong and secure. We live, we dwell in a house where the rock of Christ is there. And the Bible tells us he will lift us up. And there's such peace in knowing that. It doesn't have anything to do with our ability or strength. He lifts us up. All we have to do is dwell. Just be in the house. This is totally consistent with everything that scripture teaches about salvation, right? It's a gift. It's grace. It's given to us. We don't do anything to earn it. We just use that key to open the door. And once we're standing up there on Jesus, our rock, what does it say? He will lift us up and now our head will be lifted up above our enemies around us. And I'm telling you ladies, that benefit can affect your whole life. Minute by minute, day by day, any day of trouble, any situation that comes, the good times, the bad times, having your feet planted and you're lifted up on the rock of Christ changes everything. Think about it. Where do so many of our battles take place? In our heads. In our heads. The way we think about things the way we perceive things to be or presume things to be. We're so full of presumption. You know, Proverbs says presumption causes much strife. God has spoken to me for years about that. And especially this year in the midst of all the days of trouble going around. The conversations that we have in our heads with ourselves and with other people. Have you ever told somebody off in your head? <laughs> yeah, okay? We're creating all those enemies. The conversations that go around in our head. The mental arguments that we have in our head. The brain trends of the culture that go on in our heads. The thoughts that have plagued us for years. You know, your brain, it's studies of the brain tell us that we create pathways in our brain where we just 
you know, your brain is going to naturally go. And how many of you know, if you walk through a, a you know, forest long enough on the same place, you're going to, you know, create a well-worn path. And so when you go to get from this place through the forest to the other side, maybe the creek's over there or whatever, you're just going to pick that path because it's right there. Well, in the same way, that's what we do mentally. We just, oh, there's the path. So we just walk on it. And your brain just goes there automatically. It's a lot of work to say, no, I think we'd like to go over here. And you've got to push things out of the way and move things and clear a path. And over time, you know, but what happens in our head so often is our brain just defaults to that same thought pattern that we've had year after year, day after day, that's really just full of brokenness and sin and enemies, right? All of it. Oftentimes, all this stuff goes on our heads, and what happens is it creates battlefields in our minds where the enemies arrive then, and they draw their swords, and no wonder we're so worn out at the end of the day. No wonder we struggle so much, because we're fighting all these battles in our heads. And see, when we live down here in the world, and all that's going on in our heads, and we're looking at these things, you know, just straight on. Like we've got, I, I like to say, I've got a front row seat to the battle. Like, right, I'm right, right there, and I see all of that. No wonder it feels overwhelming, because it's up close, and it's, it's, it's right in my face, and I feel overwhelmed by it, and these enemies just feel like they're going to undo me. No wonder I start running and hiding in all these hiding places, right? Because it is so big in our heads. But when we're in the Father's house, it's all different. Everything's different because God lifts us up on Christ. And what this tells us is he gets our heads up above the enemy. So you're not looking at the enemy face on, you know, up close, but you're, and I'm going to just illustrate here, you're up here, and so you're looking down. And what happens is, you know that line we painted on those rocks, that gold line, that divine separation between the earth and heaven, that's God's perspective. That's that holy perspective up here. And so instead of being down here where the trouble is raging, God gets me up here and I get to start looking down at it like him. He gets my head above it so I can see with the mind of Christ, with the eyes of Christ, with heaven's perspective on what God is seeing. Because so many times the battle is raging in my head because it's all based on what I'm seeing or what others around me are telling me they're seeing. And God's up there going, uh, I want to show you something different. Let me lift you up and put your feet on the rock of Christ. God has a new way for us to look at things. He gives us a new perspective. He gives us new opportunities to build new pathways in our minds when he gets us up there. He gives us wisdom perspective. He gives us truth perspective. When you look at things from up above, they look very different. I'm sure most of us in the room have probably flown in an airplane before. If you haven't, think about another time that maybe you've been up in the air, maybe up on a mountain and you're looking down, right? Or maybe you've gone parasailing or things like that. You know, when you get up high, the whole landscape changes. All the perspective changes. When you're elevated, things don't look the same. So let's think about some of the enemies that show up in our heads, okay? And thinking about getting that perspective from on high. I think the first perspective that changes when God lifts us up on Christ and begins to um, show us things from above is that enemy of self. How many of us know we're often our own worst enemy, right? <laughs> especially, especially in our minds. People tend to do one of two things. They either tend to self-hate or they tend to self-exalt. And you can watch culture and it swings both directions in a lot of ways. In our culture right now, in Christian circles and outside of Christian circles, there's a phrase that's going around a lot. You are enough. You are enough. You've got what it takes. You know what? You really don't. <laughs> You're really not enough. Without Jesus, we are lost, wretched sinners. And you know what? We were never designed or created to bear the weight of our worth. We can't do it. And we can follow that lie. We can let that enemy get in our heads. But ladies, that is not true. That is not true. 
We have incredible worth and value, but we are not enough without Jesus. Jesus pours his life into us and he holds the weight of our value. He holds that. When you try to follow that line of thinking, you're going to swing between shame and you're going to swing between self-exaltation. And it's, it's a horrible battle that's going to rage in your head. And I, I see it play out all the time. When I first started hearing that statement, something in my spirit didn't sit right. Part of me wanted to go, yeah, I am, because God loves me and he cares about me. But what begins to happen is I have to bear the weight of that then when I'm saying I'm enough. I can't. I was never created to bear that weight. And that might be a new thought for you. That might be something you've, you know, grabbed hold on. And if you want to have a conversation later about it, we can. But you might even have a shirt that says that. I, it's a huge popular thing in our culture today to say that and to think that, even in many Christian circles. But it's not truth. It's simply not true according to Scripture. But we go between these self, you know, hate and self-exaltation. When we self-hate, we battle failure and shame, which definitely keep us from God's best, right? And we self-exalt, we battle pride and selfishness, which also keep us from God's best. When, but when our feet are lifted up on Christ and we can look down from heaven's perspective, we will see God's perspective of who we are. He created us with value. We were sinners, but Christ sought us out. He made us enough. He died in our place. He offered us forgiveness. And when we receive it, he unites us with himself and gives us purpose to serve other people and to serve his purposes. We up here, up here, you're going to get that perfect mixture of divine humility and divine worth. You can't get that down here. It will always be swinging one direction or the other. But up here, it's mixed together holy and perfect to where you'll be able to see yourself continually in both of those things, full of worth, but also so needy of Jesus. And it's a beautiful mixture that you can just rest in and never be at war in your head about yourself. 2 Corinthians 5.17, it was one of the passages you copied. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. Christ made us new. There's a new way to see yourself in your head. And we see ourselves that way when he lifts us up. We no longer have to stare at ourselves in the mirror and battle the self-hatred or the self-exaltation because we're standing on the rock of our salvation, looking at ourselves from on high, the way that he sees ourselves. He's his, our father, we're his child, we have value, we have purpose, we have provision, and more. And let me just mention this. That lifted up view of ourselves should also have incredible effect on the enemy of sin habits in our lives. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Even the sin habits that we struggle with after we're saved. So we'll talk about that. But first, let's talk about some of the other common enemies. What about this one that goes on in our heads? What about fear? We all can relate to that enemy of fear. And we all know what it's like to look fear straight in the face. Doesn't matter what the source of the fear is. It could be being afraid of going to the dentist, right? And I've been there. Um, or, you know, it could be fear of some looming prognosis health-wise. I mean, it could be fear of having to stand up in front of people and, you know, present something if that's not your gig. I know a lot of people, this is their biggest fear, to have to stand up in front of people and talk. For some reason, I'm weird in that way. It doesn't bother me. But a great fear of mine would be to have to serve 35 of you dinner. And so I'm so thankful for, and I'm not kidding about that. That stresses me to the max to have to feed a lot of people. And so we're all created differently, right? So fear, fear gets in our heads in different ways. But in the day of trouble, when we dwell in the house, God will lift us up above that enemy of fear. And we can look down and we see things so different. We see we're not alone. God is with us. What do we copy from Psalm 23? Such a well-known passage, but it's even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. When, when God gets us up above our enemies, above that line that separates heaven and earth, we see different. 
we see different, that God's with us. We begin to see nothing is impossible with God. We begin to see he is working. In one of my darkest days on this earth, I should say darkest seasons, the truth that God kept showing me over and over and over again as he lifted me up and gave me that elevated view is I am working. I'm always working. I do not slumber. I do not sleep. I'm always working. From our view, many times it looks like God is doing nothing, right? But God told me over and over. He showed me over and over again. He was working. And we get that view from up above. We see his faithfulness. You know, when you can see the big picture of things up above, you see a much broader scope than what you're looking at, you know, straight on, right? And so we see he's faithful. We see his victory. And in light of those perspectives, the enemy of fear goes away. And a flood of peace comes into our heart. What about the enemy of bitterness? <laughs> we can probably all relate to that one. We all know what it's like to be hurt by somebody. Whether or not it's intentional or not, it still hurts, right? It hurts. And you can easily turn that person into an enemy in your mind. You turn them into that. We demonize people so quickly in our minds. But in our day of trouble, when God lifts us up above ourselves, above the enemy of bitterness, as we stand on Christ and his forgiveness of us, we see how ugly our bitterness is, how stinky our bitterness is. Even up there, we're like smelling the waft of, you know, the putrid death like we talked about yesterday. We see this bitterness does not even make sense in light of what God has done for me. We get a view of that. We see that person as somebody that God created, that God loves, that God is trying to work in. Maybe they are even really a full-on enemy. Maybe they have created situations that are absolutely wrong in your life. But it is something to reckon with to realize God created them. God loves them. God's got them on a journey just like he does me. I can't see that when I'm down here and I am looking right, in, right at it, you know, and it hurts and it stings. But when God gets me up here, I see things very, very different. I see myself as an ambassador of Christ, a child who lives in his house, who's got purpose to redeem people, not to shove them to hell, okay? And that's where we go so many times in our heads. That's why we copied from Ephesians 5 where it says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. So imitate what God would do. You know, God looked down on us and he did see a bunch of enemies and we were. In fact, the Bible calls us enemies of God. We were enemies like destined for wrath. And he had every reason to pour out that wrath upon us. But he did it. He poured out grace and mercy and love and we are to be imitators of that and you know what in that verse that you copied you probably saw where it says he gave himself up for us as an offering to God a sacrifice to God is a fragrant aroma and we are supposed to carry that same aroma of life as we gain the strength and that grace-filled perspective to see our situation as an opportunity to love it changes things it changes our own hearts. The, the, the battlefield just kind of goes away in our heads when we begin to see things from that perspective. So thinking about that, let's pause for just a moment and I wanna ask you a question. Is anybody in the room afraid of heights? Okay, so several of you, like you, you don't like to climb up on ladders, like you wouldn't wanna go parasailing or anything like that. You wouldn't, <laughs> you probably, what'd you say? Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So there's all kinds of fears. Yeah, I get that. I totally get that. But here's the thing. You know, we can talk about physical heights and what we like, prefer, all of that. But what about spiritual heights? See, we love to sing songs that say, Oh, Jesus, take me higher. Lift me up, Jesus. And we wave our hands in the eye. And then he goes to lift us up and get us up above the bitterness. And we're like, No, no, no. I don't like that up there. I want to stay down here where I can justify, where I can gossip and talk about them and tell 
you know, everybody why I'm justified in this or saying this or whatever. And he said, no, I want to lift you up here, but I'm afraid of heights, God. I don't like to go there. And see, I say that to me too, because there's going to be places where we get up there and it just looks glorious, but there's going to be times when we get up there and it feels so vulnerable. Like you're standing on the edge of a cliff looking over, you're like, I'm going to fall. But you're not. But it is scary up there. Because God's taking us above the things that we're used to. The things that feel safe sometimes. We have to realize all the things that we see when our Father lifts us up to these places are not going to be things that necessarily feel safe and, and you know secure. What we have to realize, when he lifted us up, he planted our feet securely on Christ. And so that is secure. And our security is in him. And that he is going to lead us always into greater and greater things. It's always for our good. And really, if we want to experience the benefit of being lifted up, we can't say, well, I'd love to be lifted up for that, but I don't want to be lifted up for that. Okay? We can't choose. He's going to lift us or he's not. If our feet are up there, he's going to show us things, and we've got to be willing to find our courage and our trust in that our feet are planted on the rock and knowing what he's showing us is good, even if it's new, even if it's uncomfortable. Christ calls us to surrender, right? To, to let him lift us up. Matthew 16, you copied it. Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. There's that surrender, right? If we're trying to save ourselves and take care of ourselves, we're going to lose the life that he wants to give us. But when we let him lift us up, even to the places that are scary, it's good for us. And that's what we see even when we look at the next enemy that I know we all deal with in our heads. And we all know this enemy, and it's pride, right? Such an enemy. It's kind of rooted in the first one we talked about, about the enemy of self, but I want to talk about it a little bit differently. See, this enemy shows up all the time. Many times this enemy dresses itself up in self-righteousness. That's what Jesus encountered many times when he, you know, walked on the face of the earth as he dealt with the religious leaders. They knew the truth, right? But they were all dressed up in the self-righteousness of it. Many times that pride shows up in arrogance, in slander. I think a lot of times for us as believers in a sense of superiority, right? That we carry around. It's just in our thoughts. We don't even know that we're doing it many times. Harshness, annoyance, callousness. Pride is a sneaky, manipulative enemy. And often we don't even see it. But when God lifts us up above our enemy of pride, and we're standing in the humility of Jesus, right? Because we're standing on the rock of Christ, the service of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. We see ourselves and we see without Jesus, I'd be lost. I would be filthy in my sin. I would be so needy of his life, caught up in death. And then we begin to gain the humility to relate to people like Christ did. To relate to people in service and in love and in grace. We copied from Philippians 2, verse 5, where it said, you know, have this attitude in yourselves. It was also in Christ Jesus. And if you kept copying some of the verses or even read into them, it, you found that it said, you know, who, although he was God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. But instead, he took on the form of a servant. So what that says to me is, if I'm going to really be planted up above this world where people have, you know, it's my right, you know, we're always talking about our rights. When God, when God plants my feet on him and I realize who I'm standing in, if he was God and he is willing to humble himself to serving me, then who am I ever to have a sense of superiority over anyone? Anyone. I can't. That is a scary view from up there, ladies. When you start translating that into the moments and in, in, in relationships and people you encounter, people that are enemies in your mind, okay? But what happens up there is we see this view up top from up here. And not only is it scary, but it's also glorious. I did get a chance to go parasailing a couple years ago. I was actually in the Florida Keys. 
And it was scary getting into that thing and, you know, like, whoa. But once we got up there, oh, my goodness, it was amazing. I would do it again in a heartbeat. It was glorious up there. But it is that moment where you have to decide, yes, I do want to see. I do want to look and to step into the scary and to get up there. Because when we do get up there, God reveals truth. Sometimes he corrects our behavior. Sometimes he reorients our perspective, but he breaks open more and more and more life, gives us a wider expanse in view of it. He's always doing something good. For whatever the enemy is, or or let's even go here, we've talked about this a little bit, but whoever the enemy is, whoever that enemy might be, because so often our battles in this life are related to people, right? And the struggles we have with people. And so we do that. We turn people many times into enemies in our heads. I would say today in our culture, people speak openly of people as enemies. And they, they, if you ask them, but, yeah, but what is it for you? Specific? They can't even articulate that sometimes. But we just get these ideas in our head that people are the enemy. We need a heavenly perspective. And that's what we get when God lifts us up on the rock of Christ. We look from heaven and we see people the way that God sees people. We look from heaven and we see that specific person that we've just been having a battle with all day or all year or maybe many years in our heads as a person he created, he loves, and that he wants to save or help. And maybe he even wants to use us to do that. Now, I know this word from God is challenging I hope it's also inspiring, but I want to caution you for just a moment before we move on to just a little bit more and then close. Let me tell you what most people are prone to do when, you know, you study this for a while or you think on it or listen to it. You start thinking in your mind, okay, I got to get up there in Christ because I don't want to be down here, right? So even in our minds right now, I imagine that some of us are thinking, okay, I got to get up on Christ so I can deal with this enemy of bitterness. Um, How am I going to get up there? Got to get rid of this pride because I don't want that in my mind anymore. And you're already thinking about climbing, right? Because we are doers, most of us, right? And we want to get it done. But remember, that's not the way this works. We don't have what it takes to climb up there. He lifts us up. And then our heads are lifted up above the enemy. The only thing we have to do, and we keep saying it over and over again, is dwell. Just be in the house with a willing, open heart. And when he starts to draw you in close to hide you, lean in, right? Listen. Participate in the family of God. That's what people do when they dwell in the house. They participate in the family. They don't go hide in their room somewhere, right? They're just in the family of God. They dwell in the house. They're with the people of God. They're with God himself, talking to God. We dwell there. And then he lifts us up when the day of trouble comes. He hides us. He lifts us. He does it. We have to keep that in mind. We're so prone to putting the weight the burden on ourselves, but it's not. It's by grace, through faith, not of ourselves, the gift of God. The lifting of you and me is very, very heavy, ladies. We can't do it, but God will lift us up. A moment ago, we talked about the enemy of self, and I also mentioned the enemy of sin habits and patterns that we still tend to struggle with even after we're saved. Anybody relate to that? Okay, (laughs) I imagine so. Too often, believers experience a mindset of not being able to overcome certain areas of sin in their lives. It might be one struggle for you and another for me, but it's all sin no matter the case, right? The power of any sin, though, is often in our heads. That's where it resides. That's where the enemy shows up. We don't think right about ourselves. Many times we don't think right about God. We don't think right about the action itself. Maybe we've started justifying it or, you know, kind of smoothing it over. We, we, we just speak that it's okay. We start talking about it in that regard. But it all starts in our heads. And it kind of leaves us in this, this is just the way I am mentality. Guess I'll just have to be like that till I get to heaven one day. But that's not the attitude of somebody who dwells in the house. And we'll even talk about that some more tonight. But in so many ways, 
the enemy stakes his claim in our minds in regard to sin. And, and we can have a tendency to just give up or just fight the battle out day after day. And that is just no way to live. I know that I've lived like that in seasons, and I'm sure that you have too. But God has better for us because when he lifts us up on Christ, he doesn't just save us from sin, but he wants to set us free from sin. And we're going to celebrate that, like I said, more tonight. But So let's talk about the enemy of sin, and let's look at it a little bit more closely. And I want to look at the life of Joseph for a minute and also share some personal testimony. So Joseph was another guy in the Old Testament, um, and I believe he is one of the ones that God also revealed some of the glories of Jesus before his day. All right? In fact, many consider Joseph to be a type of Christ, meaning there are a lot of things in his life that mirror dynamics of Jesus' life when Jesus was here. So he's kind of like his life is a picture of Christ. And that's a whole other study in and of itself. But this morning, as we look at the enemy of sin and how the Lord lifts us up above that enemy, I want to show you something that the Lord showed me about Joseph's story. And I want to share it with you because I think it could help you. Um, as well as it's helped me. See, just like you, I, you know, I'm a Bible girl. I love God, but I deal with strongholds of sin in my own life too. I, I'm just like anybody else. And last spring, I was doing a fast because the Lord, as he had lifted me up on Christ, and I got an elevated view of myself, I could see that once again, this enemy of sin that I have tended to battle with for a lot of years had taken hold in my heart. That area of sin for me, where the enemy just likes to come back over and over and over again and just kind of stake his claim in my head, is in regard to food. I love to eat. I don't like fixing food for people much, but I love to fix it for me. And, um, I, and I can't cook and stuff. I just get stressed when it's, you know, a big group. But I, I do love to eat. And there's nothing wrong with food, and I know that. But it's what I do with food a lot of times that can become the enemy and become sinful. Because food has many times become an object of worship for me. I don't bow down to it. I don't sing songs to it, right? But I give it my attention and I give it my affection. And many times I turn to food looking for something in food that food can never give to me. Now for years, I didn't see it like that. I looked at food from all different kinds of perspectives. I read all kinds of books and tried to get people to tell me what was wrong with why, you know, all these different things with food. But when God lifted me up, and gave me an elevated view of myself, I saw the real picture of what I was doing. I was absolutely saved in Christ. There was no shame, right? Because I get that divine mix of my worth and value in him and the humility of seeing myself as needy of Christ when I'm up here. So there wasn't shame in any of it. I saw myself as a beloved child of God. Things were secure. That's great. When we're lifted up in Christ, our feet are planted firmly in our salvation. But I also saw that so many times, instead of turning to God, I turned to food. And that played out in all kinds of ways in my life. And I'm not going to get into all that right now. I will in more conversation with you at some time if you'd like. All right? But over the years, God has brought me again and again to places of victory that I've had with food as I've dwelt in his house. But there's also been times that the enemy just gets in my head again. And last spring, in the midst of COVID, okay, many of you maybe as well, this was one of those times. So after several weeks of that, you know, just battling and just not being in a place of peace, and I knew I wasn't in a good space, in response to that, I started a fast. It, it was a way for me to lean in because I felt God drawing me in, hiding me, right? And so I wanted to lean into that as he was drawing me near because I was in a day of trouble again. It was a way for me to snuggle up next to him and, and hear what he had to say and also let him lift me up and show me some things. So I was doing that. And one of the things that he showed me was about Joseph. And I want to tell you about it. So, you know, you're probably aware Joseph's brothers were... Um, hateful to him, right? I mean, they literally rejected him, tried to kill him, and he lost his place in his father's house because his brothers did that. And he ended up being taken to Egypt where he was sold as a slave there. But over time, God had favor upon Joseph and he actually rose up to the highest position in a high-ranking officer's house and the man's name was Potiphar. 
And all of that's in Genesis 39. And actually, if you want to turn there, we're going to read a few verses there in just a minute. But we read in in Genesis 39 that Joseph found great favor. He wasn't just given the position, but Potiphar loved him. Like he trusted him with his whole house. We find that in some of the first verses there. But then Potiphar left Joseph in charge and listened to what happened. I'm going to start reading at the second part of verse 6. It says, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I and he has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her, to lie beside her, or to be with her. So one morning during this fasting time, I was sitting out on my back porch, as I often do, spending time with God, reading my Bible, and my eyes fell on this part of scripture that I just read to you. And I was familiar with it. I've taught on it. I've read it many times. But I sensed God saying, I want to show you something from up here. I want to show you my perspective. I want to give you a new way to look at yourself and this sin struggle that you're struggling with. And within minutes, like, I mean, like, I didn't even have to think about it. Like, he just downloaded, like, this whole perspective to me. And it's when those kind of things happen that I, like, sit up because I'm, like, I've read this so many times. I've never seen this before. Like, I couldn't write fast enough to get down what he was showing me. Let me, let me lay the groundwork for you. Joseph was a young man. So he was surely tempted when Potiphar's wife came and brazenly offered him herself to him sexually day after day after day. He had been in a prison. I, I mean, it's very probable here. And I would say probably almost hundred percent. Joseph is a virgin here, right? Because he's been in prison. <laughs> he's been a slave. And now here's this woman just open and his master's gone. I mean, he could, he could do whatever he wanted to do. He has full charge of the house. He could walk in, close the door, and tell the other servants to, you know, go away, whatever. He, he could have done that. But what did he do? This is what God showed me. Seven things that he did. And we're going to look at them really quickly. Number one, he refused. Verse eight, what does he say? It's, or what does it say? But he refused. <laughs> And what God showed me in that moment, Sharon, you have a choice every single time. You have a choice. You are not a slave to sin. I wrote a whole Bible study on Romans 6 years ago. I know that I'm not a slave to sin. I know that in my head, but sometimes I need heaven to show me that and remind me of that. And I am not a slave to sin. I don't have to obey food. I can say no. <laughs> he refused. God showed me that that morning. Number two, he spoke. Verse 8 says, but he refused and said, he spoke out loud. He spoke to her and he spoke the truth and I can do the same thing. It is a right response for me as a child of God in the house of God with my feet elevated on the rock of Christ to speak truth to anything that negates the values of my father's house. The truth he was speaking to her was elevating the values of Potiphar's house that he had been entrusted to care for. I live in my father's house and I have a responsibility to uphold the values of my father's house. And the number one value in the father's house is worship of my father, right? Worship of my father, honoring my father. God created sex. He created food. These are some of the greatest pleasures that he has given us in this life for our flesh. He didn't have to do either one, but he did. And we get to enjoy them. There's nothing wrong with sex. There's nothing wrong with food. But God has given us boundaries and lines that are going to create, or have those things for us to be a blessing in our lives. And I have to speak to whatever it is that is calling me to step outside of those boundaries. If I'm going to be a responsible steward in my father's house, a responsible daughter, right? 
So important. He refused. He spoke. Number three, he realized. Verses eight and nine. He realized what he had been given. He'd been given a place of authority in this house, a place of trust. And God showed me that morning and he gave me that realization. Sharon, I have entrusted you with your body. I created this body for you. I've given you a job in this world. I've given you a place to be an ambassador for me. You've got to take care of this body. I needed to realize that. My responsibility to respond. See, remember last night we talked about how that tumult of iniquity, and it's just one little step, and we think, oh, it doesn't matter. And then it's another one, and another one, and it gains momentum, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. When I don't have the realization that I am responsible for what God has given, the authority that he has placed in my life. He doesn't create me as a robot. When he saved me, he didn't make me a robot. I still have a choice, but I've got to realize my responsibility to make sure that every step is not a little step in the wrong direction. Number four, he stewarded, meaning he took care of his master's property well. And likewise, there are certain things that as, you know, um, somebody who's in charge of my being that I need to steward. You know, we need to steward our finances. We need to steward, you know, our, our responsibilities. We need all kinds of things. If we're parents, we have to steward our children, all of those things. Well, my body is something that I need to steward. I need to steward. And, and I, I had lost sight of that as I was in the middle of COVID and, you know, just bored sometimes or frustrated sometimes or all the emotions that we were dealing with. And, you know, it just seemed like food just became a, a, a place of refuge for me. And God had to get me up above that and show me something different. Number five, he discerned. So we've seen he refused, he spoke, he realized, he stewarded, he discerned. Joseph discerned that relationship with this beautiful, available woman in front of him would not only be sin against Potiphar, but it was sin against God. And when God gave me this elevated view, he showed me that I too can discern good from evil. A lot of times when we're dealing with a sin problem, we're looking at it straight on and we're just defining it like the world does. And we just gloss over it or give it a glittery picture and make it seem okay. We justify it, whatever, and we don't realize we're walking straight on into death, right? But when we are up above that, we can discern and we can call evil, evil, and we can call righteousness, righteousness. We can see what is evil and see what is good. See what God loves and see what God hates. We're not defining it by the way the world does. We define it by heaven's view. But that happens when we're lifted up above and we have to give time and we have to give um, you know, permission for God to lift us, right? He's not going to force us up there. We've got to be willing to go with him and see that. And he'll give us that wisdom to know the difference and to discern the difference. And you know what? Many times when he takes us up there and, and he gives us the discernment to call something evil, and, that, and it might be that that's just for me because I have a propensity to idolize food. It may not be for anybody else, right? But when, um, when God does that, there's going to be many times that people around you are going to say, that's ridiculous. But you've got to still, she was probably taunting him. That's ridiculous. Who cares? Nobody will know. Da -da -da -da. Well, all the things that we're told. We've got to be able to have that strength and we can have it when we're standing on Christ and we're seeing from above. Number six, he declared, Joseph declared his decision. He said, no. And he also declared his faith. This was about more than a one night stand for him. This was about pleasing God. And he wanted to please God and he declared that. And I need to declare, that's what my life is about. That's what I want my life to be about. But in that moment of temptation, when I knew that maybe I was turning to food and I'm not even hungry, right? That it's just a, it's, it's a refuge for me, the emotional reasons that I run to food and the different things that, that I need to, look at that and just declare no no i've actually gotten to where i speak out loud to food and say no we're not doing that nope sorry 
Yeah, I mean, I literally do that now. And then the last one, he persevered. This one blew me away, this elevated view that God showed me that day. What does it say in verse 10? And it came about that as she spoke to Joseph, day after day, Day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. One of the lies that I have allowed to play in my head sometimes over the years as I've battled out this enemy of food and the idolatry of it and everything is that, you know, if it was just something that I just didn't have to deal with every day, but you have to eat. So this is so hard. I can't do it because it's day after day, right? Day after day, he refused. He did not give in. He persevered. I can't do that in my own strength. I am not enough to do that in my own strength, right? And this is not about a rule and a legalism and God snuffing out the pleasure of life. It's not that at all. God created the glories of food. He created all the taste, all the smells, all the feels of food. He talks about feasting in his word. There are seasons for that. There are times for that. There's glories in all of that. It's what me and my sinful nature does with food, right? Or you and your sinful nature does with whatever it is that you tend to idolize or put in places that it shouldn't be. But in that elevated view, this is what God did. I mean, how much more practical can you get than this, right? You know, refuse, speak, realize, steward, discern, declare, and persevere, and be done with it. Let's get an elevated view and walk in victory. He does that when he lifts us up. He is so practical. He's so real. He's in the moment, and he wants to get our heads above our enemies so that we can rise above the death of the enemy that the enemy of our souls is trying to bring into effect all of our lives. Every day, ladies, the enemy is trying to kill you, right? Every single day. And God wants to lift us up above that. The Father's all about life. We're going to close things out. I'm going to mention real quickly one more person in the Old Testament as we close out that got lost in some of this, that got let in on some of the secrets of Christ, and his name is Enoch. Enoch doesn't get much ink in scripture at all. Hardly much written about him at all, only a few lines. But I want to read one of them for you. And it's written in the New Testament. The writer of Hebrews tells about Enoch living early on in the book of Genesis. So he's way in the book of Genesis. But Hebrews 11.5 says this. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. See, it's kind of crazy, but Enoch didn't die. God just reached down. And lifted him up. So he didn't have to taste death. So he wouldn't see death. Now, we don't really know all the details about all of that. And there's things that people have, you know, surmised and wondered and, and all of that. We're not going to get into all of that. Lots of mysteries about Enoch, so I won't get into them. But one thing I do want to get into is that God lifted him up so he wouldn't taste death. Enoch was one of two people in the Old Testament that that happened to. Him and Elijah. For Enoch, God just lifted him up. Elijah, we're told he went off in a fiery chariot. And all that happened under the old covenant. Two people. Only two people. Guess what? All of us are living in the new covenant. And we all have the opportunity to be lifted up above the death. So that we don't have to taste it. So that we don't have to live in it. And that happens for the people who are dwelling in the house. God will lift us up on Jesus. So we can see things from life's perspective, not death's perspective. In other words, we won't have to deal with the enemy of death in our heads. Our enemy will always start a battle in our heads. But in our Father's house, he will lift us up above that enemy so we can live. It is an amazing feature. In the Father's house, the rock of Christ. We are lifted on that rock. Oh, the goodness of God. Oh, the goodness of God. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. You will lift us up. You'll teach us up there. You'll give us a new perspective. You'll bring healing to our hearts. You'll comfort us. You'll show us the work that you're doing. You'll give a landscape of your victory and your faithfulness, God. You're so good. We get to live in a house and be lifted on this rock. God, may we dwell in your house. May we rise above the death that you never intended for us, God. 
practical, real, life-changing truth that we get lifted up, God. May we dwell there. And may that have impact on us as we paint these rocks even this morning and think about these truths that we want to hide in our hearts, God. You're so good. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was praying, and Nicole walked by, and I smacked her right in the face.